Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Well, good morning. So I know that Clint's kind of emphasis for missions this year is not just, oh, kids K through second, y'all can go in the back. Uh, Clint's kind of missional emphasis for this year is not just uh, financial support, but also how can we get hands-on in doing the mission work that the Lord has called us to. And that's one of the new partners that our church is partnering with, and I know Clint is very excited about it. So I would encourage you to, if that's something you're interested in, go and get plugged in in that. My name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. If you could all do me a favor and say, hello, Board of Ordained Ministry for me. Not a rhetorical question. Say, hello, Board of Ordained Ministry. Hello, Board of Ordained Ministry. Thank you. So this is my ordination sermon. I have to submit uh, a sermon for them to review, critique, to hopefully see that I am not a heretic. Um, (laughs) And they're going to take this recording and they're going to review it as part of my uh, final stages of ordination. So all of my paperwork is due at the end of the month. Praise be to God. And then I'll have my final interview, I think, in March or April sometime. And then hopefully by May, I'll be fully ordained. And this decade-long process will finally be over. Thanks be to God. So I'm one step closer. This is my ordination sermon. So, uh, board, uh, I, I love y'all. And I would hope that y'all would ordain me. This also happens to coincide with the new sermon series that we're starting uh, called What We Believe. And it's about what are those foundational beliefs that we have in the Christian faith. And if you remember last year, around November, we did kind of some standalone series about foundational topics about what we believe. And the more we thought about it, the more we were like, you know, we just need to just do a whole series on this, like a whole full big series. So that's what we're going to be doing from now till then, is looking at these foundational aspects of the faith. And we're going to be starting off this week with baptism looking at those core, complex issues in our faith and finding uh, the scriptural and biblical and theological answers to why we do things um, and also just the foundational theology underneath the faith. Uh, So today in the liturgical calendar is the baptism of Jesus. And so every, year, every time during this year, we do a remembrance of baptism service where we'll touch the waters of baptism as y'all leave. That's why the service is a bit different this morning. Uh, the emphasis today is on baptism and remembering our baptism, remembering what the Lord has done for us. And so if you want to open up your Bibles, the guiding text for this morning is going to be in Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to use this Luke text to kind of springboard into a general theology of baptism and then circle back to how this text specifically applies to a theology of baptism. Uh, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I will baptize, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Uh, skipping down to verse uh, 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came down from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Word of God for you, me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, oftentimes when we talk about baptism, I think we get too caught up in the big baptism debate, and we miss kind of the core of what baptism is. Uh, I'm sure that you are all well aware of what the great baptism debate is. Do we do believer's baptism or infant baptism? I also like to call it the great Methodist Baptist debate or the great Methodist Baptist war, if you want to go that extreme. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who would say oftentimes when we major in the minors that we're putting the, the emphasis on the wrong syllable, which is a very cheesy line, but it gets his point across that sometimes in the faith we take these issues that are important, but we elevate them to a status uh, that become too divisive. Uh, just, I'll kind of explain this uh, using this chart that I've uh, found in one of my seminary classes I'm sorry, it looks like a five-year-old drew it. I couldn't find a high-quality image that had perfect circles for some reason. So this is how I like to think about theology. So in the middle, you have what's called dogma. These are the core essential tenets of the faith, the things that no Christian should ever compromise on, the essentials of what it means to be a Christian, the core, core essentials, like Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Fully God, fully man, crucified, buried, rose from the dead. When you think about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that's kind of the the dogma of the church, the core of what it means to be a Christian. And then outside of that circle, we have what's called doctrine. And doctrine is important, and it shapes our theology, it shapes our practice, it shapes our view of God and how we live out our faith. And ultimately, those are kind of the differences between the denominations, The differences between the denominations are not dogma issues. They tend to be more doctrine issues. So an example of a doctrine issue would be infant baptism or believer's baptism. Another example of a doctrine issue would be Calvinism or Arminianism, which is another way of saying predestination or free will. They're important things in our faith, but they're not core, core essential. In other words, you can disagree on these doctrine issues and still be a Christian. But you can also value them highly. And then finally, in the last circle, we have what's called opinion. And opinion are the elements in the faith that should never divide a church, that should never be put to the center. Uh, The things that tend to be in the dogma category are the most clear in Scripture. The things in the doctrine category are less clear. And then the things in the opinion category are the least clear. So an example of something in the opinion category would be, uh, does the book of Revelation, when it talks about, I think it's like locusts coming and descending, does that mean that it's an Apache attack helicopter or does it mean something else? Uh, If you believe it's an Apache attack helicopter, that's okay. If you believe it's something else, that's also okay. Should never divide a church over what your interpretation of the apocalyptic language is in the book of Revelation is. And oftentimes when it comes to the baptism debate, what we do is we take our doctrine of baptism and we elevate it to the level of dogma. We elevate it to the point of, if you don't believe my way of interpreting this, 
there's something fundamentally wrong with your faith. And so that's not something that I want to do here today is keep it in the level of doctrine, keep it in its proper place. And so to start off what our theology of baptism is, uh, fundamentally we believe that baptism is the initiation sign of the new covenant. That baptism is fundamentally the initiation sign of the new covenant. And what is a covenant? That's one of those big, fancy church words that often gets thrown around but rarely explained. So I'm going to explain it to you all today. Uh, Covenant is fundamentally a legal contract between two parties. It's an ancient legal contract, and it's usually between kind of a, a more powerful lord and then a vassal, if you can kind of think of it in those medieval terms. They have this sort of very powerful leader, and he makes a covenant with a weaker vassal. And usually there's kind of stipulations on both sides of what they will do in the contract. Usually the stronger, more powerful one says, I'll protect you, I'll support you, I'll defend you from enemies. And the weaker one usually says, well, I'll give you tribute of crops or something like that. And so when God makes a covenant with his people, it's, it's a legal contract, it's a binding contract that God makes with his people. And our God loves to make covenants with us. We see many covenants that God makes throughout scripture. But I want to focus specifically on the covenant that God makes with Abraham back in Genesis 17. It says this in Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell down, on his, uh, fell down on the ground, and then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations." I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and the kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So that's sort of the stipulations from God's end. And later it says this, this is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between you, between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased." So you have God making a covenant with Abraham and you hear the the stipulations. This is what God says, I will do for you, Abraham. And the Lord calls Abraham to walk blamelessly before him. Your stipulations is to walk blamelessly, blamelessly or the call of God on his people is holiness, to become like him. And what the Lord says to Abraham is, this is going to be the sign of the covenant, the outward physical sign of the inward grace within circumcision. That was the sign that God made with Abraham. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is is this covenant that we are engrafted into through Jesus Christ. 
That Jesus Christ doesn't come to abolish the old promises of God, but comes to fulfill the fullness of the promises of God through Jesus Christ. That through Jesus, we are made heirs of Abraham. We are engrafted into this promise of God that God will always be with us, that we will be his people and he will be our God. Romans eleven seventeen talks about the engrafted branches. Uh, Paul says this, but some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off and you Gentiles who are branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing of God that he has promised to Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. That you see the promises that God makes to Abraham, we have been engrafted into that promise. That through Jesus Christ, he doesn't come to abolish the old covenant, but to fulfill the covenant that God made with Abraham and then to explode it to all the world. Later in Galatians, Paul will say this, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promises to Abraham belong to you that we have been engrafted into that covenant promise of God. And the new sign of that covenant is baptism. The outward sign of being engrafted, initiated into that covenant promise of God through Jesus Christ. again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. Paul makes this link explicit in Colossians 2. He says this, When you come to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of your sins. Paul makes this explicit link here in Colossians between circumcision and baptism that when the new covenant comes, which is just the exploding, the opening up of the old covenant, that when Paul makes this link, he says the new sign is no longer outward circumcision, it's baptism to represent the inward grace, the inward work that I'm doing in your life. The sign of this grace is baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of the covenant promises of God. Because covenant 
is fundamentally about God's promises and faithfulness to us. In Corinthians, Paul writes, all of God's promises in Christ are yes. And so we say amen. Our focus on baptism is on God, not us. We are baptized. There's a passiveness in it. We don't baptize ourselves because it's primarily about God's work of grace in our lives, about God's promises to us, about God's faithfulness to us. John Wesley, in his treatise on baptism, speaks about this uh, being brought up into the promises of God. He says this, from which spiritual vital union with him precedes the influence of his grace on those who are baptized, as from our union with the church, a share in all of its privileges and in all the promises Christ has made to it. In other words, in our baptism, we are brought up into the promises that God makes with his people. And this covenantal understanding This covenantal understanding of baptism is why in the Methodist Church we baptize infants as well as adults. Because if baptism is the new sign of the covenant and it replaces circumcision, then babies who were able to be initiated into the old covenant as babies can so too in the new as well. And scripture is not explicitly clear on this issue. Uh, There's no text that says do not baptize babies only baptize adults. There's no clear text, um, which is why we put it to the level of doctrine, because it's not a dogma issue where there's lack of clarity, that it's in the doctrine level because there's, there's kind of a bit of a gray area in Scripture. And in fact, most of church history, uh, in the book of Acts, there's instances of entire households being baptized. And for most of church history, they took that to mean that there must have been children there as well who were baptized. And so does this mean then that children who are baptized automatically live into the promise of their baptism? Of course not. It's an initiation. It's initiation into the covenant of God that they have to then live into. Just as adults who are baptized don't always live into their baptism either. But it's about initiation into the promises of what God will do in our lives. That God's faithfulness will remain steadfast in our lives. John Wesley says this about infant baptism. Infants are capable of entering into the covenant with God as they always were. So they still are under the evangelical covenant. Therefore, they have a right to baptism, which is now the entering seal thereof. He says later, how can we suppose that they, they being infants, are in a worse condition under the gospel than they were under the law? And that our Lord would take away any privileges which they previously then enjoyed. Would he rather not make additions to them? In other words, Wesley's argument there is that if the, if the gospel is about opening up access, opening up to more people, why would the Lord go from infants allowed entering into the covenant with circumcision and then exclude them in the new covenant? You know, when I was a child, I've shared this before. It was when I was in kindergarten. I was five years old. I calculated it. I did the math. When I was five years old, I uh, had panic attacks 
really had no cognitive faith. Um, I just knew about Jesus was a, someone that my mom read stories to me about growing up. And I remember the Lord visited me in a dream because I had uncontrollable panic attacks. And the Lord said to me in a dream, Jeremy, you never have to be afraid when you're with me because I was a child of the covenant of God because I was an heir to the promises of God. That it wasn't about my faith in God, it was about God's faithfulness to me. God's faithful promises to me that I had been brought up into all that God wanted to do in my life. So when we talk about baptism, we say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Outward sign, inward grace. The outward sign of baptism, the pouring on of water, and the inward grace of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The greatest gift that we are given in our baptism is the Holy Spirit. Greatest gift we are given in our baptism is God's very presence. Luke, going back to our guiding text for the day, in Luke, the baptism of Jesus, John says this about what Jesus will do in Luke 3.16. John answered their question saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's basically saying, all I'm doing is pouring water over you. This is merely an outward sign, but soon, soon there is someone coming Soon there's someone greater than I coming. And when he comes into our midst, he will give us the Holy Spirit, an inward grace, and he will pour it out over us. That God's desire is to pour out his spirit on us. That the greatest gift when we are entering into the covenant of God, that he gives us his very presence. And the Lord has been foreshadowing this all throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Joel, this is what Peter draws on in his Pentecost sermon in Acts. Joel says this in 2.28. Then after doing all these things, the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men, and women alike, that the Spirit is given to everyone. The doors have been blown open. And Jesus, who is baptized not for himself because Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything, but rather as he enters the waters, he cleanses the waters so that we may be cleansed in our soul. We'll dive deeper into the Holy Spirit later in this series. But real quick here, you see in this picture of this Trinitarian love of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, that when we are baptized, we are brought into this covenantal relationship. We are brought into this eternal Trinitarian love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who descended and rested on Jesus descends into our souls and into our hearts and dwells within us. The outward sign of baptism is a sign that God makes. It's not merely a human sign, but it's a sign of God's covenantal grace and covenantal promises to us. That baptism is merely the beginning point 
of a lifetime with the Spirit of God. It's a promise from God that I will always be faithful to you. I was reading uh, one of my books from seminary this week in preparation for this sermon. I came across this quote, and I just love this quote. It says this, Always, in every sacrament, two sacraments are baptism and communion, God is the central figure. And it is what he does that is of supreme moment. So here, it is not the baby nor the parents upon whom we ought to keep our eyes on, but upon the Lord God himself, who is most surely in our midst, who takes this little one into his arms, pledging himself to stand towards him, to every word of grace that he has ever spoken. He erases the general terms out of the promise and he writes in his very name instead so that it runs no longer, God so loved the world, but God so loved this little soul and that he gave his only begotten son for him and if he will have it, to take and use that wonderful gift. In the meantime, here's God's personal pledge to vary him, that God intends it and has planned it all for him. That when we are baptized, God erases the general promises of the covenant and writes in our name. Because covenant is fundamentally about God's faithfulness. I mentioned before that God makes many covenants in scripture. One of the covenants he makes is with Noah, after Noah, after the world is flooded, the Lord makes a covenant with Noah, with all people. I will never flood the earth again. It says that my sign of this covenant with you will be putting the rainbow in the sky. Uh, the Hebrew word there is actually bow. There's no rainbow, it's just bow. That God puts his bow in the sky and the angle of the bow is pointed upwards to the heavenly realms. In other words, God is saying, over my dead body, Will I break my promise to you? And then later in Abraham in Genesis 15, there's this uh, story about when God is making the initial covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that God says to Abraham, take animals, split them apart, which is a very weird thing to do. Take animals, cut them in half, split them apart, create an aisle down the middle. And then the Lord puts Abraham to sleep. In those days, what would happen to seal the covenant between two parties, the weaker party would do that. They would split the animals in half, and the weaker party would walk through basically saying, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may what happens to these animals happen to me. And so you expect Abraham to be the one who walks through the middle, but God puts Abraham to sleep, and God himself walks through the middle of those animals. God says, over my dead body, will I not be faithful to you? And we see that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It says, over my dead body, I will do whatever it takes to get you home. I will refuse to not be faithful to you. I will always be faithful to you. I will always be faithful to you invite the band back up. Baptism is fundamentally, when we talk about the dogma of baptism, baptism is about God's faithfulness to us. That when we enter into relationship with God, we don't put stock in our works, 
in our past or even put too much stock in the amount of faith that we have when we are baptized. Because what matters is not the amount of faith that we have, but who is our faith in? Are we putting our faith in the faithful, covenantal, keeping God? And faith isn't a formula. It will never be. Because there's instances in Scripture where the Spirit's sent out before our baptism, and then there's instances after our baptism in Acts where the Spirit is sent out. So there's not really a formula of exactly how this works. There's a mystery behind God, but the Lord invites us into relationship with Him. And so today, friends, we remember our baptism. If you've not been baptized or if you want to baptize your children, we do either or. Whatever doctrine you feel comfortable with, we'll meet you right where, we're, where you're at. If you have not been baptized, we would encourage you to come see home team members or me or Stacy after the service and just sign up so we can meet and talk with you about it. But today what we're going to do as you leave this place, Stacy and I are both going to be standing at the exits and we are going to be having bowls of water and we're going to encourage you to touch the baptismal waters and remember your baptism. Remembering your baptism is not about a literal remembering of when you were baptized. It is remembering the covenantal promises of God and the covenantal faithfulness of our God who will never let us down. I want to close with this verse from Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, who says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Friends, remember your baptism and be thankful. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.